So some of you know my Arizona story already, um, if you've been around here for years, but it's been a pretty long time since I shared it, and I thought I'd tell it again because for me it was a really formative uh, moment in my own spiritual journey. Um, I wasn't much of a troublemaker as a kid, believe it or not. Um, I got decent grades, I enjoyed school, I, I, like a lot of kids, had really big dreams, I loved God, I gave my life to Jesus when I was young, and believed in the mission of the church. In fact, early on, probably around the age of 12, I sensed God inviting me to participate uh, in his mission, in his dream for creation. I didn't have a real good sense exactly what that would look like. I played around with becoming a missionary for a while, um, but needless to say, I thought I might end up in some form of ministry. However, somewhere along the way, as often happens for teenagers, I got distracted. I got a little sidetracked. How did this happen? God only knows. Uh, Should I blame it on my parents' divorce when I was 12? Was it the fact that all my friends were unchurched? Might have had something to do with it. Uh, Was it simply my own curiosity, my own desire to explore other ideas and to take ownership of my uh, own story? Who knows? But the unintended consequences of this was my growing fascination with a particular culture that revolved primarily around drug use. I kept it hidden for quite a long time, uh, but eventually my parents found out and it created huge problems for my relationship with them. I lived with my father at the time, and it was this relationship that suffered the most. I think for years I lived with this deep sense of shame believing that my father disapproved of not only what I was doing with my life, but that he disapproved with who I was, or at least who I believed I was at my core. And the more I felt like he was pushing me to be someone other than I was, the more I retreated, the more hostility grew between the two of us, and all I wanted to do was to escape. And so in my years after high school, I found myself kind of all over the place, from attending college to living in the mountains of western Montana uh, to eventually moving in with some friends in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was in Phoenix that something shifted. I'm not going to go into all the details of what led to this shift, but needless to say, I found myself wanting out. I didn't like the path that I was on. And more than that, I think I was sensing God's invitation again. I was in a spot where I was, I was open enough to hear God speaking. I realized that I wasn't really experiencing life, like full life, the life that I knew that was possible. I didn't feel like I had a purpose, and, and I did not want to settle for a dreamless existence. And I really believe that those deep God-given desires were stirring in me, and so I needed to go home in order to change. So what did I do? I called mom. (laughs) What else would you do, right? I still had a a pretty good relationship with her, and and she felt safe to me. We had had a much better relationship than, than the one that I had with my dad. And so I shared with her how I felt, how I felt like I needed to get out. And her response didn't surprise me in the least. She said she'd get me on one of the first flights available that she'd fly me home. I'm like, cool. A couple hours later, though, I got a phone call, and it was my dad. Now, his response 
unlike my mother's, was totally unexpected. He dropped what he was doing, got into his truck, and drove all the way to Phoenix to pick me up and bring me home. I never saw that coming. And every time I'm reminded of the story, I can't help but be reminded of Jesus' words in one of his most famous parables in Luke chapter 15. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. The trip was incredibly healing for our relationship. On the way home, we stopped at the Grand Canyon And I still remember us standing there gazing at this incredible gulf, realizing that the gulf that had separated us had now been bridged by the love of a father for his son. And a new relationship, a new story had been born that that week. I want you to take a moment and imagine yourself standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Just picture yourself standing there. Look out over that huge expanse, that gulf that separates one side from the other. And think, consider to yourself, how might this be a metaphor for what I'm experiencing in life right now? Where might there be a gulf between you and somebody else? How might you be feeling alienated? Are there walls between you and your spouse? What about your parents or your children? Maybe it's a friend or a neighbor or a colleague. Or you could ask yourself, where am I feeling hostility right now? You know, we might feel hostile toward any number of people in our life or even groups of people. Some of these people may have hurt us and we feel hostility toward them. And sometimes we're simply taught or raised to see a particular group of people or a particular other, we might say, as someone to be despised. Maybe it's a certain race or a certain faith or a certain country or a particular political persuasion. Needless to say, I think all of us in some way or another, I'm guessing, are standing on the edge of a relationship that is desperate for reconciliation. But we can't see how. We're not sure how that would be possible. So today as we continue our series, uh, Becoming Who You Already Are, which is taking us through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, I want us to ask God for the grace to see what might be pretty hard to see right now, the possibility of a new relationship the start of an unforeseen story. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, the gift of worship, uh, for the, the beautiful music and the voices that are raised together to honor and glorify you. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures that can be heard and brought into our lives, and and with the Holy Spirit, bring about real change. And so we ask for your blessing on the reading of the Scripture this morning, and say, Holy Spirit, come and have your way in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 again, uh, starting in verse 8. The words will be on the screen, or you can look in your, in your own Bible if you brought it, and I'll give you a chance to turn there. So I'm going to actually back up a couple of verses and overlap some of the ending verses that we left with last week to make sure that we're in context uh, with this letter here. So Paul writes, uh, starting in verse 8, for, grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So then, based on that, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Well, what's Paul asking the the church in Ephesus to remember here? He says, remember this, remember. What's he asking them to remember? I still remember some of the words that were carelessly thrown around between my father and myself at the height of our conflict. Words that characterized our hostility, uh, labels that came to symbolize our mutual alienation from each other. I mean, think about it. How many of our own experiences of hostility and alienation involve words, right? Words meant to hurt. Words meant to label and tear down and divide. And we know that personally we've experienced it in our own relationships and we can see it out in our culture, especially in the world of politics these days. Words meant to hurt, to label, tear down and divide. Now, it might be hard for us in the 21st century to wrap our minds around just how hostile the relationship between Gentile and Jew was in the time that this letter was written. But we have words that give us a real clue as to the enmity that existed. Uh, Gentiles and Jews would often call each other by derogatory names. For instance, Jews referred to Gentiles as the uncircumcised, which was a way of kind of like saying, God's chosen us, but not you. And when the Greek term atheos, which is translated without God, we get our word uh, atheist from, when that was applied to somebody in the first century, it didn't simply mean that this person didn't believe the same thing that we believed. Instead, it was a, it was a cultural insult, a, a form of what we might call uh, today hate speech. And the Gentiles were just as likely to sling that term right back at the Jews and later Christians because they wouldn't participate in the same cultural practices as everybody else. So people were referred to as atheists. It was, it was an insult. Now, unfortunately, underneath these words lay 
even worse, attitudes and actions. William Barclay helps us get a feel for this when he writes the following. He says, quote, The Jew had immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of the Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was considered the equivalent of death. So what is Paul asking them to remember here? Well, it would have been incredibly hard to see any possibility of reconciliation or peace between these two groups, between these two communities, when this is the story that you're living in, when this is the dominant uh, narrative that controls how you see other people, it prevents you from seeing any other possible way. And I know some of us carry around a story or two a past littered with words, with attitudes, with actions that prevent us as well from seeing any other possible way. And yet, this is what I love about the gospel. There's always a and yet or a but. This sad story is told in the context of a new story where Paul insists that there is another way. And that's what he Uh, breaks into in verse 13 with, of course, a but. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting death, that hostility, through it. Well, it was a a notable feature of the magnificent temple built in Jerusalem by Herod the Great. Now, the temple itself was constructed on an elevated platform, and surrounding it was the outer courtyard, or what has been labeled the Court of the Gentiles. From any part of this courtyard, one could look up and you could view the temple. You, you could smell the incense being burned. You could hear the sounds of worship and sacrifice taking place. But at no time was a Gentile allowed to approach the temple. They were cut off from it by a surrounding wall of five-foot-thick stone barricade on which were displayed at intervals notices like this, written in both Greek and Latin. Now, this unassuming slab of limestone doesn't look like much to us, crudely fractured, chipped on the sides, pockmarked with age. 
but its smoothly hewn face and its crisply etched Greek letters reveal a very stark warning, because this is what this reads. Quote, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In other words, no trespassing or you will die, <laughs> unless you're a Jew. Wow. Walls, like words, often bolster our enmity between one another. They act as powerful symbols of alienation that, that exists among both uh, individuals and groups. And we know that walls didn't just exist in the first century. We have walls today that divide, that continue to, to bolster the enmity between individuals and groups and nations. As Paul says in verse 14, though, that when Christ died, he dismantled the dividing wall of hostility. That's just not a cute metaphor there. There was a real wall there that symbolized that hostility, and he's saying that that wall has come down. When he makes reference to the law with its commands and regulations being set aside, he's referring to all the ways that the nation of Israel marked itself off from other nations. Circumcision was a boundary marker, saying who's in and who's out, who's loved and who's not. Food regulations were a boundary marker, who's clean, who's not. Ritual washing was a boundary marker. The wall surrounding the temple was a boundary marker. And Paul says emphatically that in Jesus, these divisions are gone. The hostility is put to death. That old story of us versus them or in versus out has been replaced with a new story of radical inclusion and love for even our so-called enemies. And see, the first Christian communities began to live this new story out. And what people witnessed was something completely unforeseen. Never would anyone have thought it possible for a Jew and a Gentile to worship together. To break bread around the same table. That was radical. In fact, Paul writes that what was born within this new story was in fact one new Humanity in place of the two. The words and the walls fell away and gave rise to something totally new. See, in Greek, there are two predominant words for new. There's neos and kainos. And neos speaks of something that is new as it relates to time. So it's the latest iPhone 10, for instance. I got the new iPhone, right? But Paul doesn't use that word. He doesn't use neos. Instead, he uses kainos, which speaks of something new as it relates to kind. So while neos might refer to the newest iPhone, kainos refers to the invention of the phone, something the world had never seen before, something completely new and unforeseen. So while we may not be able to see how on earth the story that we are living in could be any different than what it is, can't see how that relationship could ever be healed or how peace could ever be achieved, I believe that there's an unforeseen story just waiting to be born. 
Because Christ's death created something the world had never seen before. Jew and Gentile, two communities who hated each other, coming together, doing life with one another, sharing meals, and worshiping with one voice. And there was no paradigm for that. There was no paradigm for that. And so, regardless of the story that we find ourselves in, the truth of Ephesians opens up the possibility for us to participate in a very similar story of reconciliation. A a story of walls being torn down and new humanity being born. See, I believe that if we're going to live fully in the grace of God and participate in his dream for creation, which is really Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You know, you exist in God's grace. It's all gift. And in this place of grace, God has laid out this new way for us to live, the way of Jesus. If we're to participate in that, then we're going to be called, we're going to be invited to live out a story of reconciliation, both as reconciled people, reconciled to God, and also to enact reconciliation among ourselves. Because there are beautiful, beautiful unforeseen stories just waiting to be written. One Sunday morning in June 1991, there was a man by the name of Michael Weiser and his wife Julie. They were unpacking boxes in their new home in Lincoln, Nebraska, when suddenly the phone rang. And the voice on the other end said, you'll be sorry you ever moved into 5810 Randolph Street, Jew boy. And then they hung up. Two days later, the Weisers received a manila packet in the envelope, and in it was a note that said, the KKK is watching you, scum. And then inside of that manila envelope were pictures of Hitler, caricatures of Jews with with hooked noses, African Americans with gorilla heads, and graphic depictions of dead African Americans and Jews. So they called the police. And the police said it looked like the work of Larry Trapp, the state leader or the grand dragon of the KKK. He was a Nazi sympathizer and he led a group of skinheads, clansmen, who were responsible for terrorizing African American, Asian, and Jewish families in Nebraska and nearby Iowa. He's dangerous, the police warned, and we know that he's been involved in bombings. He makes explosives. See, although he was confined to a wheelchair because of late-stage diabetes, Trapp was the suspect in a a number of firebombings. Several African-Americans' homes around Lincoln was responsible for burning down the Indo-Chinese Refugee Assistance Center in Omaha. And now Trapp was actually planning uh, to blow up the synagogue where Weiser was the spiritual leader. He lived alone in this drab efficiency apartment, and on one of the walls he had hung this huge Nazi flag and a double life-size picture of Hitler. Next to those hung his white clan robe with its red belt and hood. He kept a whole array of, of assault rifles and pistols and you know, whatever to protect himself when his enemies would come crashing through his door. And in the rear was a secret bunker he built for the coming race wars. He eventually launched a white supremacist TV series on the local public uh, access cable channel featuring men and women saluting a burning swastika 
and firing automatic weapons. And when Wiser saw this, he, he, was, he got pretty angry. And so he called Trapp's KKK hotline and left a message on the answering machine. And he said, Larry, do you know that the very first laws that the Nazis passed were against people like yourself, who had physical deformities and handicaps? Do you realize that you would have been one of the first to die under Hitler? Why do you love the Nazis so much? And then he hung up. <laughs> and he continued to call in to the hotline on a regular basis and leave messages. <laughs> and then one day, Trap picked up. He said, what the hell do you want? He said, I just want to talk to you. Are you black? <laughs> no, I'm Jewish. Well, stop harassing me. And he demanded to know why he was calling. It was then that Wiser remembered a suggestion his wife gave him. And he said this. He said, well, I was thinking you might need a hand with something. And I wondered if we could help. I know you're in a wheelchair and thought that maybe I could take you to the grocery store or something. Well, Trapp was too stunned to even speak at that suggestion. And then he cleared his throat and said, that's okay. That's nice of you, but I've got that covered. Thanks anyways, and don't call this number again. And Wiser said, we'll be in touch. <laughs> During a later call, Trapp admitted that he was rethinking a few things. But then he went back on the radio spewing the same, whole, same old hate. Well, furious, Wiser picked up the phone again and said, it doesn't seem like you're rethinking anything at all. What's the deal? And Trapp said, in a surprisingly shaky voice, I'm sorry, I did that. I've been talking like this my whole life. I don't know any other way. I'll apologize. That evening, Weiser went uh, to his congregation, and they led prayers for the Grand Dragon. And the following night, the phone rang at Weiser's home again, and it was Trap. And he said something surprising. He said, I want out, but I don't know how. And so the Wisers offered to go over to Traps that night to break bread. Trap hesitated, but then agreed and said, hey, I live in apartment number three. When the Wisers entered Trap's apartment, he ended up crying <laughs> at the sight of them. He tugged off his two swastika rings, threw them threw off to the side, and soon they were all crying and laughing and hugging. Trapp ended up resigning from all his racist organizations. He wrote apologies to the many people he had threatened or abused. When a few months later he learned he had less than a year to live, the Weisers invited him to move into their home. And when his condition deteriorated, Julie quit her job as a nurse to care for him. See, there are beautiful, unforeseen stories just waiting to be written. When I picked up the phone in Phoenix, Arizona, hearing my dad's voice on the other end of the line, I had no idea what to expect. See, there was the story I had been living in, that my dad had been living in, but there was a new, unforeseen story waiting to be born. I wanted out. 
I didn't want that wall to exist between my dad and myself any longer. And by the grace of God, there was reconciliation and there was peace, but it took a risk. It was a risk for my dad to drive all the way to Arizona to pick me up. It was a sacrifice for him, but it was worth it because a new relationship, a new story was born. Picking up the phone in Lincoln, Nebraska, and hearing Trapp's voice on the other end saying he wanted out, Michael and Julie had no idea what to expect. There was the story that they had been living in, that Trapp had been living in, but there was a new unforeseen story just waiting to be written. And by the grace of God, there was reconciliation and there was peace, but it took a risk. It was risky to go over to Trapp's apartment that night to break bread. It was risky for Trapp to open up his home to them. It was a sacrifice for them to care for him in his dying days, but it was worth it. Because a new relationship, a new story was born. So what story are you living in? Where have words or walls hurt your relationships or kept you from seeing the image of God in somebody else? Think about it. Where have words or walls hurt your own relationships? Because there's a new unforeseen story waiting to be written in your life. There always is. That possibility is always there by God's grace. It might take a risk. It might involve sacrifice. As we talked about last week, it might require a certain kind of dying on our part. But as we also talked about last week, that is the surest path to life. And it will be worth it. I love what pastor and author Brian Zond writes. He said, he says, what is an enemy? An enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. Isn't that great? What's an enemy? An enemy is someone's, someone whose story you haven't heard yet. And so maybe God is simply inviting us to listen to someone else's story. Maybe that's our first step, taking the time to listen to someone's story. And so this is what I want to encourage you to do this week. Ask God to show you one person, or maybe it's a group of people, where he wants to bring reconciliation and peace. Ask for the grace to listen to their story. Ask for the grace to extend and receive forgiveness, if that's what's needed. And in fact, ask for the grace to maybe, if the opportunity presents itself, take a risk and break bread together. Maybe that's where you hear their story. And then I want you to offer this relationship to God and get ready. Because I believe that there's a new unforeseen story waiting to be written in your life. Amen? Well, let me stand.